This is Let Your Voice Be Heard, right here on WHCR 90.3 FM, the voice of Harlem. Good morning, and welcome to Let Your Voice Be Heard. Until you're on your own, you can't be free. Until you own your own, you can't be me. All my man just from the what, mud, what God. Jay Z. I got the keys. And keys. I mean, I that's a very truthful statement. To some Jay this morning. Old Jay? No, some Jay. No, old Jay? New old Jay? Jay? Can I hit it in the uh, morning without giving you half of my door? Even, even worse, if I was, I was broke, broke, would you want it? If you couldn't <laughs> no, see the show right. signing on the short time, no, if, if you ride it, if you wasn't uh, driving. New Jay, actually. I was listening to the Blueprint Blueprint 3. Uh, but I do like some Reasonable Doubt. Who like some, all of Reasonable Doubt. Oh, I still want to hear 20 years since Reasonable yes. Doubt came out. 20 Platinum, years. We are all dying. We're also old. If it was I wasn't 20 years since Jay-Z was cooking brother, crack. Brother, name <laughs> jigger, would you come around, baby? Would, would you, you crown me? me? All right, guys. Hopefully uh, Stanley is done. So it's been 20 would years since Jay-Z was selling Jay-Z crack all show. <laughs> well, sorry. Um, so welcome to the show, guys. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard, where Stanley always lets his singing voice and rapping voice be heard, even though... He's horrible at both. J A Y I flow six. <laughs> I gotta find that song. We playing that song. Oh my today. goodness! You better find a clean version of that more song. Money, you, I still want to hear Jay Z's new song. Pray. It's oh, not yeah. a good no. 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 Yeah, okay. Listen, nothing could top old Jay Z. That said, nothing could top old me. No, that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> well, I still had some more fire back then in my right. younger days. So, right. <laughs> um, but who am I? I'm Alyssa Fuchs. I'm your legal correspondent, and now I'm boring. I'm not as fun as I used to be when She's I used to have crazy. Hot tub parties with fifty people in my and now you're backyard. a lawyer, <laughs> and the cops getting called. Now I can't do that anymore because I'm a lawyer. So <laughs> you can find me on Facebook at facebook.com/slash Alyssa Fuchs. That's I L Y S S A F U. CHS. <laughs> you can also find <laughs> Alyssa in court doing her job really well. Yeah, uh, you may find me at court in a hearing, <laughs> investigating <Writing>. something <laughs> at a you know right. at a NYCHA building. You never know. Writing I'm or at a hot dog party, whatever. Showing somebody the video about how a chopped cheese should be four dollars. <laughs> how it's not a steal. Still haven't oh seen that God. yet. You, you haven't? really haven't seen that video. How- Oh, Alyssa's you in a hot tub somewhere writing a 75 page brief as well <laughs> yeah I did uh, that. I cut that from 54 pages down to 32 what? well actually my boss helped so shout yeah. out to Josh Fitch leader <laughs> mm. um, I am Jackie Cohen no one cares I, I care and my parents care no no my parents care yeah, we, we shout out to Jackie's parents yeah, we like them better parents. anyway Lisa and Gary um, you can follow me on Facebook on Instagram on Twitter at Jackie Cohen J-A-Q-I-C-O-H-E-N Stanley? Oh, yeah, me. So, Jay, now I'm playing. So, my name is Stanley Fritz. You can find me on the PC Ones and Twos. You can also find me on Twitter at Stan Fritz, where I currently have 1,050 followers. I feel important. I'm probably not. You can also <laughs> find me on Instagram at Stan Fritz and on Snapchat at Stan Fritz because Selena tells me I can't have more than one name. If you want to talk to me, see me in Harlem. You can and find him on the block, exactly. Right. And I am Selena Hill. On Instagram and Twitter, that's Miss Selena Hill, and I spell it with an MS, of course. And we have a great show lined up. We probably are going to play a little more Jay Z songs, so look forward to that. But Yay. we have good discussions. We, um, we're going to start the show talking about the U.S. jail system and why the suicide rate is so high. Um, you know, we're commemorating Sandra Bland's death. She died um, a little over a year ago at this time last year in a, in a jail in Texas. So Rest since then, 811 other people have died in jail. So we're going to talk about that. And we have a special guest on the line who's going to join that conversation. Later on in the show, we're going to talk about the Bastille Day attack and also the Turkey military, well, attempted Turkey military coup and what that means for the chaos, the crisis, the violence 
violence and the bloodshed overseas. Why are you smiling when you say that? I'm not. You, you really are I'm smiling. Just, well, because you told me I was smiling. Guys, look at her on the Ustream. Where's the stream team? I don't see them today. But she is smiling very hard. Oh, well, I smile all the time. No, she doesn't. She doesn't smile at me at all. We are not at you. Not at you. No one smiles and, at you. And you know what? She shouldn't have that. to smile at anybody. <laughs> she doesn't want to smile at Yeah, don't tell right? us to smile, don't Stanley. Hey, calm down. Calm down. <laughs> that's <right>? funny. <laughs> yeah, no, but that's like one of my biggest pet peeves. When you're walking down the street and somebody's mm. like, why don't you smile, girl? It's like, why don't you keep it to yourself? Women dude? be tripping, right? No, it, it's it's <laughs> annoying. Um, and then last but not least, Alyssa will be giving us a quickie slash rant on why Bernie Sanders endorsed Hillary Clinton. Because he and, better had. Right. Basically. And the 12th Amendment, the role that the 12th Amendment played in all of that. So I'm definitely looking forward to that, guys. And, of course, if you want to let your voice be heard, you can tweet us at beheard underscore radio. You can also call us up at 212-650-6903. We're going on a quick break. But when we come back, we're talking about the suicide rate in jails. Don't go anywhere. We are back on Let Your Voice Be Heard on 90.3 FM, WHCR, The Voice of Harlem. One day we will tell you what just happened during the break of this previous segment. But until then, you should notice Lena tried to get me arrested, put in jail. Do you know why? Because I told her she looked like Fergie, a black one. <laughs> okay, you almost that got made no sense. The other day. Well, no, what, what did I really almost get myself arrested or was I just being Stanley on a Sunday and someone didn't no, like no, it? No, no, no. You were fine and you had the right. Well, it's interesting. So you, I mean, side note, you have the right to refuse to give ID on the street. But when we're on a college campus because mm-hmm. we're on their property, like if they ask you for an ID, technically you do have to give it to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you were just being mouthy. And right. I was just like, which is not arrestable. But, you know, these cops out here, they just they make arrests even when it's not arrestable. That's so. right. Speaking of arrest. Ooh. Um, so as I mentioned before, we went on break. Sandra Bland died on July 13th, 2015 in a Texas jail. We all remember that dash cam video in which she was pulled over um, after she failed to signal while crossing lanes on a highway. She gets pulled over. She um, uh, a, a verbal confrontation ensues between her and a police officer. Eventually, she's like slammed on the ground. She complains that her head was hurting. She also says that the officer's knees were in her her back she's taken to police custody she's transferred to a a texas jail she dies three days later and reports come out that she committed suicide now there was so much controversy over her death because i mean if you look at her facebook feed uh, if you checked out her facebook page in the days before her death and even if you heard that that phone call she made to her sister she did not seem suicidal she didn't appear suicidal but i will say when she filled out a form while entering the jail she did say that she had been suicidal in the past red flag so I say that to say, as we you know commemorate her death, as we say her name, as we call for justice for Sandra Bland, um, Eric Gardner, and in other people who have died, um, either uh, in the hands of police or in police custody, a scathing report came out from the Huffington Post, um, and it shows that 811 people have died. That means two people, no, more than two people per day have died since Sandra Bland died in a jail, and all these people are dying in jails. Now, I read the report, and I was completely blown away because, number one, the reason why they're dying is because of... Um, 
suicide. Many of them are committing suicide. And why are they committing suicide? Because think about it. They're being arrested while they're angry. They may be intoxicated. They may be enraged. They may be paranoid that they're going to lose their job. They're going to lose their spouse. There's a lot going on. They may have mental health issues. Maybe the police did it. Maybe the police did it. Good point, Stanley. And, and sometimes when it's not suicide, it's violence in jails, which right. you know we can talk about as a as a secondary matter. Excellent points, guys. And that's true. A lot of things are occurring in our jails. And I'll say this. It's extremely preventable. I mean, think about it. You have security there. You're supposed to have trained police officers there. Why are people, so many people, dying in jails when, you know, you're supposed to be in the custody of authorities? It really doesn't make sense. Um, so, you know, I, we're, we're going to spend some time just delving into this report that was um, posted on the Huffington Post and talking about the, the criminal justice system. When it comes to our jail system, I mean, on this show, we talk about prison reform all the time. But I would say for the most part, the detriment of U.S. jails has been overlooked in, uh, you know, mainstream media. You know, this is the first time we're really, really delving into it. So, you know, it's it's about time that we give this issue some due justice. Um, And we have on the line with us a very special guest who was actually quoted in this Huffington Post article. Um, I would like to introduce to you guys Margot Schlanger. She is a professor of law at the University of Michigan Law School. As I mentioned, she was quoted in the Huffington Post article about their investigative report on the U.S. jail system. She is also the founder and the director of the Civil Rights Litigation Clearinghouse. Welcome to the show, Margot. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. So, you know, um, we want to start this conversation uh, by asking you, what was your reaction to um, the fact that this report came out and said that over 800 people have died within the last year? Were you shocked or did this further validate statistics and data that you already knew? Yeah, the the latter. So about a thousand people die in jail every year. Um, that's the numbers that we've been seeing since those numbers have been uh, started to be kept, which was in 2000. And every year the Justice Department issues a report, um, not with a lot of context, but with a lot of numbers. And it's always about 1,000 a year. Guys, if you're just tuning in, we have on the line with us Margot Schlinger. Um, she is a professor of law at the Uni- University of Michigan Law. Um, and we're talking about the deaths of people and like she just said almost a thousand people die a year in jail across america and we have with us our obviously our legal resident scholar Alyssa fuchs and before we decided to talk about this segment or decided that we were going to talk about it on air Alyssa made a great point about the difference between jail police custody and prison and i don't think everyone understands that so i want to just throw it to you Alyssa, to explain that yeah definitely so i mean there's obviously three different points at which somebody is in custody you have police custody which is when somebody is first arrested um maybe they're held in a police car and then they're brought to a police precinct and they're held in a holding cell at a police precinct in police custody um then you have jail uh jail is a place where generally speaking there's two different types of people that are being held in jail You have pre-trial detainees, which is essentially people who have been charged with crimes. Uh, They're not they have not been convicted of any crime. In theory, they are innocent until proven guilty of the crime that they have uh, are alleged to have committed. And they are being held uh, for one of two reasons. Either a uh, they 
could not make bail, meaning that bail was set on them. It is too much money for them to be able to make it. And because they can't make that bill, they are awaiting their trial, awaiting their next court appearances. Um, or in some cases, people are remanded, meaning they don't even have bail set on them. Uh, the court determines that they're too much of a flight risk or in some states too much of a danger uh, to, to get a bail. And so they just get remanded. And so they're at jail awaiting um, the outcome of their criminal proceedings. Um, and in and they are innocent um, people that are in jail uh, because, like I said, they are pretrial detainees. Then you have a whole second set of people who are in jail. And those are people who have actually been convicted of crimes. Uh, at least in New York, it's misdemeanors because in New York, a felony will give you more than a year. But um, if you are serving a sentence, of less than a year or a year, then you go to a jail. You do not go upstate to a prison. Um, once you are convicted of a higher level crime in New York, it's, it's generally a felony. Uh, then you are looking at a sentence that's longer than a year. And in that situation, you go to prison. And a lot of times we hear a lot about people who die in police custody or at the hands of police, um, as we discussed at length last week. And we've done many shows here where we've talked about prisons and about reducing our prison population and some of the things that Congress is trying to do uh, to change our sentencing laws at the federal level to reduce the number of people in prison. But what a lot of times gets over overlooked is people that are in jail, either serving sentences less than a year or are waiting trial and people who are actually presumed to be innocent and sometimes die or suffer horrible violence in in a jail custody. So that's a really important distinctions that we should make. And we should note that today we're really talking about about jails specifically. So what's most concerning to me about our jailing system is that oftentimes, like Alyssa said, you have people who are pre-trial, who are innocent until they are perhaps then proven guilty, sitting in jails that cannot afford to pay their bail. Rest um, in power, Khalif Browder. Yeah, exactly. Khalif Browder, who sat in Rikers, right, for three years because he could not make his $3,000 bail. And I think there's this misconception that, oh, families should be able to pull money together if it's that important to them um, to get people out on bail, which is ridiculous. And I think I read a statistic that said um, – you know, several hundred, maybe it was like less than a thousand, but a, a substantial group of people in New York City alone have sat in jail because they have not been able to pay um, bail that was a thousand dollars or less, or I think five hundred dollars or less, less. Yes. between twenty dollars and five right. hundred dollars. So, is the first step in reforming our jail system, and I can ask to our guest Margot, um, reforming bail and how that works, and should we take away bail for maybe nonviolent offenders? Yeah, I think that bail reform is a huge a huge step that we really need to take. Uh, you know, it, it varies by the state what proportion of people in jail are there awaiting trial and what proportion have been convicted of things. And it, it in some states you can actually be convicted of, of medium serious crimes and do your time in jail. You can do up to two or three years in jail. But nationwide, it's 60% or so of people in jail are there pre-trial, and a big chunk of those could get out if we had bail reform. So I think we could get hundreds of thousands of people out of custody if we did bail reform. Right. You are absolutely right, Margot. Um, guys, if you're just tuning in and you have a question or a comment, you can call us up at 212-650-6903. And when we talk about jail and bring it into the broader discussion of um, – of social justice reform. I mean, you what presumably you have is two people, one 
rich, one poor, who may commit the same crime, mm-hmm. one of whom is sitting in a jail cell, the other who is not because they could afford to pay their bill, which right. is ridiculous. No, that's an excellent point. And, you know, just back to the people who are sitting in jail, we know that one of the major issues is lack of, you know, the fact that they can't pay bail and there is movement on the ground of for bail reform, one that Alyssa is uh, very active in doing. Yeah, actually, I, um, I've been working on bail reform issues for a while now with the New York County Lawyers Association. If you're interested in learning more about bail reform with respect to New York, um, I would recommend that you go to the New York County Lawyers Association website and check out the report we did on bail reform. Um, you know, the federal system tends to do bail much, much better. They uh, they put together bail packages uh, for people um, so that they can get out, whereas in New York, uh, we tend to only have three d- forms of bail that, although the law says there's eight forms of bail that are available to people, we only use three in New York, which is uh, cash, bond, and now credit card in certain places. Um, you know, but I, I just like want to harp back in on this point about, as our guest said, and, and we can elaborate on, 60% of these people that are in jail are innocent, right? Until proven guilty. And they are um, put into awful conditions where it's extremely violent in some cases. We know that in the, in Khalif Broder, I mean, there's video of him not only being beaten by guards, but being beaten by other inmates. So there's numerous problems within jails that are being faced by people who, in theory, may be 100% innocent of the crime that they have been accused of committing. Um, and, and so you have high high suicide rates and you have high violence rates. And so I was hoping uh, to, to get our guests back into this conversation to talk about some of these issues that we see in jail with respect to suicide and with respect to, uh, with respect to violence and talk about how this plays into a larger conversation about not just bail reform, but jail reform. Margo? Yeah, I mean, so so people... People in jail are often, not not always, but particularly in the first week or two, it's a very chaotic and a very um, stressful environment. They've just had a very bad thing happen to them, right? They've just been arrested. They've just been taken away from their families. They think they're going to lose their job. They're often right about that. They think they're going to lose a lot personally, and they get a series of moments of very bad news. Oftentimes, they're high or drunk when they start. They might be going through some kind of withdrawal from um, some kind of, of drug dependency, which is very undertreated in jail, and it's a very desperate moment. And so what you see is that the, the suicide rate in prison is actually lower than it is in the country as a whole, but the suicide rate in jail is three or four times greater than it is in the country as a whole. And and it mostly happens in the first week or two. And there really are these are these are unnecessary deaths. It's a third of the deaths that happen in jail and they are unnecessary deaths. They can all or nearly all be prevented by some really simple measures. Right. And Margot, I actually wanted to talk about that because, I mean, uh, you know, as I mentioned earlier, uh, suicide can be prevented. And I remember in the article, um, you talked about how some people may say uh, or, or adhere to that myth that if you're going to kill yourself, it does not matter. Like you're going to kill yourself regardless if you if you are determined enough. But in that, you know, in the article, you say, you know, that's false. In jail, we could make our jails more suicide side resistant. So I did want to start talking about some of those measures and um, that would prevent people from committing suicide so easily. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's a combination of screening, suicide resistant cells, 
observation of people who are at risk of suicide, and really important, non-punitive interventions. Because if people think that when they report suicide, what's going to happen to them is that their life is going to get even worse, they're going to be stuck naked in a, in a cold cell with no running water, then they're not going to report that they're feeling suicidal, and so you don't get a chance to do a, an appropriate intervention. So you need to do all of those things, and when you do them, guess what? Suicide rate goes way, 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 way down. Another thing that I was reading is that when people um, are first entering the jails, they're not really being, like, sufficiently surveilled um you know the officers aren't trained enough to pick up on red flags to tell if they are intoxicated if they are heroin addict and if some of these or if they have a mental illness and if some of these factors would contribute to them being suicidal so just because they tell you no um it doesn't mean that there aren't red flags there and i feel like this all goes back to a lack of training with our police officers what do you feel about that well, I feel some of it's training, some of it is systems, right? You want to actually have a system with a, a, a screening instrument, you know, a document where you have to go through and you ask all the right questions and you record it and something happens if there are yeses to those questions. Um, but also, you could, Sandra Bland was in an observation cell. I don't, I don't you know, I, I don't know anything that's not public about that case, but you look at the picture, there was a, there were protuberances that you could hang yourself from in it. There were garbage bags that you could use as ligatures. Like, what is that? I mean, how, how can that be that you put somebody in an observation cell and you design it to promote the potential suicide? You're absolutely right. I saw one video in which a guy was pulling out the drawstring from his pants and then he used that to hang himself. And it's like, and he was under surveillance. And it's, I don't understand how all of these measures are being are overlooked. Well, I mean, not for nothing. It's called an observation cell because somebody needs to be observing. So, you know, yes, there's these things like there shouldn't be garbage bags around or places for people to hang from the rafters and they should be more careful to make sure you take people's shoelaces and the string from their inside of their pants. But if it's an observation cell, then where's the person who's observing this person? Isn't there supposed to be there watching this person 24-7 to make sure they don't kill themselves? So then there's just a failure and breakdown of the system where, you know, I mean, I don't want to digress onto a topic, and I know we're going to take a quick bake, but I have clients that have been assaulted by other inmates and in some cases sexually assaulted or otherwise because some officer decided it was time for him to go take a break and he didn't get some other officer to come cover his Post. So you know what? If you're supposed to be observing, then no. damn it, observe. No, you're absolutely right. And on that note, we do have to take a quick break. But don't go anywhere. When we come back, we will continue this conversation about the detriment of American jails right here on Let Your Voice Be Heard. And we are back. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard right here on WHCR. 90.3 FM. The Voice of Harlem. WHCR. And I'm Melissa Fuchs, and I'm here with Selena Hill and Stanley Fritz and, and Jackie Cohen. And you can tweet at us on Heard underscore radio. Or you can call us at 212-650-6903. Selena, you're too late to the party. Or you can leave a comment on Facebook.com slash Politically Preposterous or on the Be Heard Facebook page. Or call Selena at 718-776. No, five. <laughs> Five, five, five. Five. Right, 555, five, yeah. So um, where we left off with break, uh, we were talking to law professor Margot Schlinger who, uh, about the U.S. jail systems and how almost a 1,000 people die in jails 
every single year. And a lot of it is preventable, but many people are committing suicide and we're just not paying enough attention to this issue as a whole. Uh, we have on the line with us Miss Deborah, who would like to let her voice be heard on this issue. Good morning, Miss Deborah. Hi, how are you? Listen, you know, if you put someone, I mean, just looking at her tape, and and um, she didn't appear to be somebody who killed herself. I, I, I just don't think she did. But if you put someone in a cell, after you've asked them all of these questions about things that they may have gone through in the past, and then you have all of these uh, places for them to hang themselves, that's a really good way to set the stage so that they could easily say, well, you know, she did have a past and, you know, she was depressed at one time or other and, you know, she had a breaking point when they could have really just went in there and, and, and killed her because they didn't like her. She was too, she did, she did not fit, she didn't fit the profile. You know, like I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, just seeing her in the car. You know, she was smoking a cigarette. I mean, that's no reason to want to tell somebody that if you don't get up, I'm going to light you up. You know, I mean, that's just no reason. It wasn't 1950s, and she just would not adhere to that. That doesn't appear to be somebody who would just kill themselves. I, 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 don't, I don't think so. Oh, yeah, Miss Deborah, I, I'm definitely inclined to agree. I think that this, the death was extremely mysterious and suspicious at the least. And she didn't seem suicidal to me either. Yeah, so I remember just thinking about when she left a voicemail for her sister, I think it was. And she said, I can't believe that a freaking um, a missed signal led to all of this right here. It just didn't seem like someone who was ready to end it. But obviously, I've never been in that space where I've wanted to take my life. I've not, I know some people who have gone through that, but it doesn't, the signs aren't always there. If you're not looking for them. So it could have happened. But my question from Margot is this, and, and I'm using a bit of my ignorance of the prison system to ask this question. But what ha- what level of responsibility is there on correction officers and the people running a prison to make sure that these people are not committing suicide? They're not being harmed in a prison and that they're not their lives are not in danger. And when things like this do happen, are there actual are there any actual consequences? Because it, it seems like some of this negligence is not negligence. It's just straight up not caring. Yeah, so that's a great question. The the um, the federal constitution says that the the way that, that the judges have developed it is that law enforcement can't disregard known risks. And so, if there's a known risk of suicide in jail, and we do know that there's a risk of suicide in jail because the rate is four times what it is outside, then you have to take reasonable steps to prevent suicides, and that means screening and putting people in cells that are suicide resistant and checking in with them and doing various things that can prevent suicides. And it turns out if you do those things, the suicide rate goes way, way, way down. You're right. Um, if you don't do those things then, and somebody kills themselves, then you can get sued in federal court. Those are very tough lawsuits. The lawyers who win those lawsuits have to work really hard and they have to be really good. And sometimes they lose cases they should win, but sometimes they win and then there are you know, then money gets paid. But, I mean, the money doesn't bring back the dead person. So, and that's where I'm confused at. So you're telling me that if one, Rikers Island, for example, which we know is an atrocious prison, if a bunch of people are dying in that prison through suicide or through attacks, whatever it is, no one's saying, hmm, maybe someone should be fired? Yeah, so, I mean, so I think people do sometimes get fired. And at Rikers, you know, there's been some very big lawsuits 
and some very big changes uh, at Rikers. And we'll see if they prevent some of the violence and some of the desperate circumstances. There's now a rule that people with serious mental illness don't go to solitary confinement anymore. That was a big suicide um, that's a big suicide risk is when you have serious mental illness and you're in solitary. People who are under 18 aren't going to solitary anymore. So maybe that stuff will actually start to fix things. We'll see. Right. No, and actually, I'm one of the lawyers that brings those lawsuits against the jails, and they are very, very difficult. A lot of times they're really hard to prove because um, in some cases surveillance video has been deleted or written over um, or the th- these events happened um, in places where there is no cameras. And specifically, you know, I've had cases where, um, you know, inmates have been beaten by corrections officers, specifically in places where corrections officers knew that they were not going to be caught on camera. Um, a lot of times if you do have witnesses, there are also other people that are in there for allegedly committed crimes. And sometimes by the time you actually go to a trial, if a case doesn't settle, um, that person has now been convicted of a crime. Um, and so now, you know, they may still have seen this event, but you now have to put somebody who is a convicted criminal in front of a jury, not necessarily your client, but somebody else who is a witness. And and so then you have jurors who are looking at this person going, uh, you know, should I believe this person? And now I don't think just because somebody's a convicted fell, and that's a reason to not believe them. Um, but for a lot of jurors, that's how they look at it. Oh, this person's a criminal. Why should I believe them? They have every reason to lie uh, to you know for their for their buddy. Um, you know, and in some cases, you have situations where you win, and yet you still have juries that that give your client nominal damages, meaning, right. you know, you get a, your client gets a dollar. Uh, f- yeah. A nominal damages could be a dollar. I've had cases that, you know, we've literally had juries turn around and say, yeah, yeah, your client's rights have been violated. Um, but we don't think it, that your client deserves to get any money. So we're giving your client nominal damages. Um, and so we'll give your client a dollar for, for that thing that happened to them. And that, and that's plausible. Or you can lose outright. They, uh, as Margot points out, they, they're very hard cases. Um, in fact, I think they're, they're probably a lot more difficult than the cases we bring against the police department. And in some cases, when it comes to a, a beating, um, there now also involves a cover-up, where now we have corrections officers that don't want to get in trouble for these things, as you pointed out, that yeah. they do. Um, so now they 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 lie and they fabricate evidence against the person that is the victim uh, in order to make it seem as though the victim had attacked them. And then that victim gets charged with a crime, and that makes it even harder and more difficult for a lawyer like me to be able to bring those lawsuits. So um, those are just some of the ins and outs of these types of civil rights cases to just elaborate on what our uh, guest Margot uh, already said about how difficult some of these cases can be. No, definitely. And Margot, I just wanted to know if you had any uh, comment or feedback. Well, I mean, the other thing is that this is maybe not so often the case in New York, but um, because New York City has a really robust civil rights bar. But if you're in places where that's less true, sometimes it's really hard for people to find lawyers for these cases. Ninety-five percent of prisoners' rights cases, the prisoners represent themselves. And that's just about impossible. I mean, it's just you just a, a person representing himself can't get past all of those obstacles. And so those cases don't work as an accountability method. You know, you really need a lawyer. Uh, I have another question. I'm kind of veering off just a little bit. So there was a prisoner in Baton Rouge who died from overheating because the prisons were so hot because of a a heat wave right now. And so I had two questions. One, prisons don't have something as basic as air conditioning. And two, what's going to be the blowback for that as far as someone getting in trouble, if anything at all? Was it a prison or a jail? I just wanted to clarify. I'm sorry. I get get the mix up. I'm sorry. Jail. Yeah. 
Yeah, so the answer is there's lots and lots of southern prisons that don't have air conditioning, or they'll have it only um, in a couple of places. You know, if you're taking, um, if you're taking psychiatric medication, a lot of those medications make you unable to dissipate heat. And so they put you at an even higher risk than other people in sweltering heat for um, death from, from heat-related illnesses. So, so sometimes they'll have air conditioning only in an area where just those prisoners are. And, and it's terrible, and that's another set of preventable deaths. I don't know the details of the Baton Rouge situation, um, so I can't, I can't really speak to that. But a lot of prisons, what they've done, and jails, they'll give people fans or they'll give people ice or they'll give them access to showers a little bit more often because they don't want to put in air conditioning. Um, and the result is sometimes that works and sometimes people die. No, I mean, you're absolutely right. And this is why you also you often hear people say, like, you know, the prison system is like modern day slavery where you have people dying because their basic needs aren't being met. And I remember a few years ago here in New York City, a homeless man died from overheating in a jail. Um, and, it, and you know, there was a big lawsuit. And, you know, that that case got a lot of media coverage, but it's happening over and over again. Yeah, there's a case out in Louisiana where the prison system spent more money fighting the lawsuit than they would have spent putting in air conditioning. So sometimes it just really kind of makes your jaw drop. Was it wow. a private prison? Yeah. That again? Was it a private prison? No, it was not. Wow. Oh, God bless America. Yes, yes. Uh, you, no, Sorry. No, 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 no. You know, I'm just wondering. I mean, obviously I do these cases a lot, but I don't really study the 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 ins and outs of them because I'm on the ground doing the, uh, you know, practical litigation. And I'm just curious from your opinion, from your research, how much of it do you think is just like negligence and how much of it do we think is like willful disregard or deliberate and willful deliberate indifference towards the fact that people are human beings? I mean, obviously we know that there are some corrections officers that get into this job because they really do care about these people and they want to make sure they do right by them and, you know, and, and would not not put prisoners or you know uh, people who are in jail in a position in positions like this. But we also know that we have a lot of corrections officers that you know they show up to get their paycheck and to go home at night. Um, you know, like how many? Like, what do we have any numbers about? Like, what is the you know divide between negligence versus willful disregard for the rights of these people as human beings? Great question. And the answer is no. There's nothing. There's no way to tell. What what you can know is that under the constitutional standards, mere negligence is not enough to state a claim. And so the negligence cases lose under federal law. Now, in some states, in some states, negligence, you know, is a state law claim. And so you can bring, say, a medical care case that's about negligent medical care. But under the federal constitution, negligence isn't enough. It has to be conscious disregard of a known risk. And so if the answer is, well, I didn't know, and, well, why didn't you know? What do you mean you didn't know? If a, if a prison guard can say, but I didn't know, that's actually a defense. Um, and so nobody knows kind of what the divide is. Wow. Uh, unfortunately, Margot, we do have to bring this discussion to a close, but we thank you so much for joining our program and distributing some of this very disturbing information um, that's just frankly not getting enough attention. Um, and I wanted, before we let you go, I wanted to um, ask you if there is a, a call to action that's something that we could all support and then um, also ask for you to distribute your information so people can get in touch with you, whether that be via Twitter, your website, et cetera. Gotcha. So my, my website is margoschlanger.net. 
So uh, that's the best way to find out any any information for me. Okay. And as far as a call to action, uh, you know, the the thing that I'm most involved in currently is an effort called Stop Solitary. And I think that there's a lot of work that people can do on that that really goes to a lot of the issues that we were just talking about. And so if you go to Stop Solitary, mm. you can find every on the 23rd of every month there's um, actions to – uh, try to reduce the use of solitary confinement, which is 23 hours a day lockdown. Right. Thank you again, Margo. We appreciate it. And um, I just want to get final comments from uh, the panel on this very disturbing issue. Alyssa? Yeah, I mean, obviously, I've given you a lot of my thoughts as somebody who deals with these day-to-day cases. And, and you know, it's really a shame that, um, you know, as our guest pointed out, a lot of people have to proceed. Um, there's also another thing we didn't really get to get into, which is the, the Prison Reform, Prison Litigation Reform Act, which actually can make it very difficult to, to sue uh, when you're actually in jail or in prison. And, and we didn't have to go have time to go into detail about that. But I, I you know, my final comment is, um, you know, I looked at the Huffington Post report, and a big thing that it mentions is that we don't have a lot of data on this. We don't have a lot of data. The federal, each state collects data differently. The federal government doesn't collect, they collect data from the states. And I think you know, obviously, there's lots of things we can do to reform jails on the ground from ending solitary, reducing the use of solitary confinement for youths, um, putting, uh, you know, mental health watch and not putting people in the hole, so to speak, if they're having a mental health um, and also reforming bail. But another thing that I really think we need to do is reform the way the federal government collects data about death in jails because a big way that we're going to be able to solve the problem is to really know what the extent of the problem is. And unless we have um, actual data, complete data that we really can get the full picture of what's going on, it makes it more difficult for us to figure out the right way to attack these types of issues. Right. Uh, And I I think, you know, from my perspective, our jail system terrifies me, especially in New York, the fact that we can have a young man like Khalif Browders sitting in jail for three years in Rikers because he cannot afford to pay his bail, to post bail, is terrifying. And I think that this isn't even, a, you know, a crime of poverty. This is just um, a disproportionate act against you if you are poor, right, that you cannot afford to post bail and be released. And this is this causes lasting damage to individuals, to families, to communities. And there's something that needs to be done right now. The prison system is the Van, is the Van Gogh Starry Night um, example of America's moral failure. That, that's exactly what it is. The prison system, system is an example of how Americans and American people can so easily forget the humanity of other people, can so easily put money in front of other things because you'll fight a lawsuit against someone dying from overheating instead of using that money to pay for air conditioning and because it shows that we don't really care about rehabilitating people. we just rather throw people somewhere into a corner and forget all about them. And when we're talking about the kind of reforms we need in this world, we need a reform of just people in general and, and how we think and how we perceive others. Because until we have that, you're going to keep having issues like this. And, you know, just before Selena gives her final statements, keep in mind, like I said, a majority of these people, over 60 percent, are people who are not guilt, not yet found guilty of a crime. They are technically people who are innocent. Right. So that could be you. You could be charged with a crime that you didn't commit and you could end up in jail and you could be somebody who's innocent awaiting trial, not being able to make bail. So right. keep in mind what like we're, for the most part, we are not talking about convicted criminals. 
criminals. We are talking about people who are presumed to be innocent. Selena? No, you're absolutely right, and I thank the panel for their comments, and I just wanted to end on this. We also need to keep in mind that the, the, major, the people in jail are dis- disproportionately black and Hispanic because we know um, there are a number of laws that have that have police officers targeting black and Hispanic communities. Last week, we had Edwin Raymond on our show, who is a, a part of the NYPD case. He is a whistleblower, and he talked about how he was he's told by, you know, the, the higher ups to target uh black and Hispanics between the ages of, I think, 14 and 19, because supposedly they'll be more likely to be involved in some criminal activity. So they're being stopped and frisked, they're being arrested, and they're putting in there, and they're being put in jail. And now we have these statistics that show that people are dying in jail, and, and it's for ridiculous things that are extremely preventable. So again, I just want to repeat that there's a number of things that we can take. The bail reform movement is something that we can all um, advocate for, whether that's on Twitter, you're donating money. You can get involved there. Raise the age campaign. Mm. New York and North Carolina are the only two states that still put children in adult prisons and jails like Khalif Broder. We still haven't learned our lesson there. So we can also support support the Raise the Age campaign in general and also Stop Solidarity, which our guests talked about. So, again, guys, this is about us getting involved. We're aware. We're informed. We know better so we can do better. And on that note, I do want to take a quick break. But then when we come back, we're going straight into the News Roundup right here on Let Your Voice Be Heard. How does a bastard? WHCR 90.3 FM, New York. All right, guys. Jackie sounds like Kids Bop. We are back. (laughs) We are back on Let Your Voice Be Heard on 90.3 FM, WHCR, the voice of Harlem. If you are wondering who you're talking to, it is the mighty, beautiful, handsome, fantastic Stanley Fritz with the regular Selena Hill, the amazing Alyssa Fuchs, and the not-so-regular or average Jackie Cole. Wow, that's the nicest thing you've ever said to me. (laughs) Ever. Average. You're you're welcome. Thank you. If you're wondering why we are so excited, it's because we were listening to the intro song of the Alexander Hamilton musical because we're too poor to get tickets and we can't get them anyway, even if we had the money because they're sold out forever. We just have to listen to the soundtrack unless you're rich and you have tickets and you want to give them to me and only me. I am all for it. Unless you're Jackie who saw the show live on Broadway. Ugly people privilege. Live on Broadway. We hate you, Jackie. Great. And shout out to Ben. Right. Yeah. And she saw it when Lynn... Um, Manuel, 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 yeah, Miranda. was actually there. Oh, yes. speaking of Lemel Aranda, him and Jennifer Lopez did a song together in honor of those people. I thought you were going to say him and Jennifer Lopez did it. No, no, no. Lynn no. has better taste. <laughs> oh, oh, that's a diss. You no, no. shaking my on Jenny from the block. Jenny from the she's not from the block anymore. So, guys, in case you're wondering <laughs> why I'm just talking about random things, this is the news roundup where we talk about our favorite news stories throughout the week. Things that made you laugh, cry, kick a table, flip a table, or maybe do the cat daddy and twist your ankle because you have no rhythm. I did that one time. So Lynn Lynn Manuel Miranda and Jennifer Lopez did a song together in honor of the the victims in Orlando and then Jennifer Lopez tweeted out all lives matter. Oh. Yes. Jenny from the block, from the Bronx. I can't. A lot of people, a lot of celebrities have been tweeting that. And I'm like, I don't think that they should insert themselves in national discourse about race unless they really know what they're talking about and can like have a take a strong stance. Like it's just I mean, if you don't follow Twitter and you don't know how much backlash you're going to get by using that hashtag, all, all lives matter, don't use it. Like, I don't know. That's frustrating to me. Just transitioning to a breaking news story. Um, we have reports just 
a little bit ago um, that in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, where Elton Sterling, um, the video of Elton Sterling was released of police officers killing him. Um, seven, it's reported that at least seven officers have been shot. Three have been reported dead. Um, there's very little knowledge about who the shooter was, um, but this happened along the airline highway where I know many protests have been happening throughout the past couple weeks. Um, the shooter used an assault rifle. We believe that the shooter is down, um, but there are no confirmed reports as of yet. Um, but there are uh, confirmed at least seven officers shot. Wow. As of now. That sucks. That really sucks. And I want to just, you know, send my condolences out to the family who um, are the officers who, who died and send my well wishes to the officers who are in the hospital and who are hurt now. We, we have a situation where it's a powder keg. Just, just to be right. frank about it, we have a, a little a literal powder keg in our communities right now, and this really sucks. You never want to see any kind of bloodshed. I mean, I'm just absolutely shocked. Uh, I, I think the country is still in shock and mourning from the five police officers that were shot at a Dallas in Dallas at a rally, and now for this to happen in Baton Rouge, and it really does feel like an all-out war. I was hoping that we wouldn't reach this point where it's just two sides. I think that you know more good is done when we work together and when we uh, strategically build a. Um, community policing i think that would be the best thing i don't want it to feel like it's an us versus them even though i mean brown people have always felt like that i'm on the side of let's work towards progress and it's just a lot it's a lot to handle right now yeah no and you know what i like it bothers me because so many people think that if you are somebody who thinks that the police should be held accountable and you're in favor of making sure that we reduce police misconduct and you know we reform police departments in order to deal with systemic and systematic racism uh that pervades police departments and our criminal justice justice system that that makes you anti-cop that's not true we had officer edwin Raymond on last week, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, to talk about these things. He is a cop. He said that he had to go back to his command and report to duty the very next day. We had a great conversation with him. As Stanley just said, we send our, our condolences to the families. You know, asking for police reform, wanting to have a better system does not make somebody anti-police, you know. Absolutely. And to, to go that one step further, this this thing that the police reform movement has created more violence against police officers is an 100% a myth. And we need to remember that. The data actually shows that we've had you know, police officers are, believe it or not, at less, even with the news that we are being reported, less risk of being killed now than they ever have been in the past in the history of America. So we really need to keep that in mind. And we can't, you know, we can't say that we can't blame protesters. We have to blame the people responsible for doing these horrible things. Um, and, you know, we have to continue to fight for police reform even when things like this happen. So we do have a caller on the line. Ms. Deborah is back again because she would like to comment on this breaking news. Ms. Deborah, let your voice be heard. Hi. You know, I feel really bad about what's, what's just happened. What is it, seven shot, three dead? You know, the same thing. And I feel bad for the, for the, the officers in, in, in Dallas. But I also feel bad about the last two black men that were killed before Dallas. And it's almost as if the Dallas policemen were used like peanut butter to to just like smear these two black people and pretend like what happened last week didn't happen. And then they just keep thumping it and thumping it and, you know, the the big funerals and the, the memorials. 
But see, if you don't deal with what was done in beforehand, then, you know, sooner or later, you're going to start to find a lot of people, they're not going to care anymore. And these people, you know, I mean, they might die and they may not die, but there's going to be a lot of police officers out here that are good police officers that are going to get shot and simply because things are not dealt with when they're supposed to. I mean, and I think that's the point where we're getting at, where people are tired of marching, they're tired of protesting, and they want justice now. I, again, do not advocate for anyone taking that matter of justice. Those cops who died in Dallas and those cops who were shot in Baton Rouge were not the cops that killed Alton Sterling, Fernando Castell, or Derwan uh, Small. So, it, or, or Eric Gardner, for that matter. We just celebrated, oh I mean, we're, we're, um, we're memorializing his two-year anniversary, the death of his, uh, his death two years ago today. So, I, I mean, it's, it's just fruitless in my point. And I just want to let you know, there is a rally being held for Eric Gardner today in Staten Island. I believe it mm-hmm. starts at 2 p.m. Right. Uh, so if you're interested in going and paying your respects, um, I know a lot of uh, groups are getting together to hold a rally for him. I'm not ex- sure the exact location. I believe it is by the courthouse, not too far from the ferry terminal. So if you're interested in heading down to Staten Island, I believe that's at 2 p.m. today. Stanley? Yeah, we do have another call on the line. We have Haji. Haji, let your voice be heard. Okay. Uh, two quick things. Um, first of all, I think that we should govern the people, the public, that is, to pay more attention to the prison system, what's going on. These people will return. These ex-offenders will return to our communities at some point, the majority of them. So we need to pay more attention to the investment that we're making in prisons. All right? That's the first thing. The second thing is, I think it was John F. Kennedy who said, if, uh, if we make uh, peaceful resistance or, or revolution uh, impossible. We make violent resistance or revolution inevitable. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you so much, much Haja. We definitely appreciate you for calling in and giving comment on our first segment, which was about jails. And, and, and now, I mean, with that breaking news. Well, you know, speaking of jails and police, I actually have a news story that's unrelated to the, th- the it's related to the things we're talking about, but different. So last week in the New York Times magazine, they published a scathing piece called How a $2 Drug Test Sends Innocent People to Jail. And basically, um, so I don't know if you know this, if you get stopped on the street and they think you have drugs, they have what's called a drug field test. Um, these drug field tests, a lot of times they're really cheap. Um, uh, they're like, they only cost $2 to produce. And there is now evidence that uh, widespread evidence that shows that these tests routinely produce false positives. And what's going on is, and, and this article goes into big detail about it. And I, I really recommend that you go actually read this New York Times magazine article. It is long, but it's well worth the read. But what it shows is that most of the times these tests come with warnings that the labs still need to be verified by an actual lab, but what happens is um, people show up at court and this plays into what we were talking about in our first segment. They show up, at, they get held overnight in jail, they show up to court the next day, they meet with a public defender who tells them that the field test shows that whatever they had on them was cocaine or heroin and that the test was positive and that if they um, don't accept some plea deal right then and there, then th- that bail is going to be set on them that they cannot make and they are going to go sit in jail and wait um, and so what happens is a lot of people decide to plead guilty right then and there at arraignments and end up with a criminal record in order to get out of 
jail based on this $2 uh, field test, which turns out is inaccurate something like over 50% of the oh time, rather than them waiting for the actual lab results to come back from an actual lab, which can actually verify. And so this article specifically talks about a woman named Amy Albritton. They found a little crumb. They said it was crack. The reagent test on the field said it was crack. When she got to jail, uh, court the next day, her public defender told her that if she didn't plead guilty to a lower level plea deal that she was being offered, that she was going to look at facing five years in prison. Um, and, you know, she was also going to go sit in jail on bail um, until, you know, if she wanted to fight the case. She decided to take the jail. Three years later, she got a letter in the mail saying that she was wrongfully convicted, that when the lab test finally came back, it showed that that thing that the officer said was crack was actually a crumb of a hamburger bun. Okay? So um, I highly recommend everybody go check out this article. Like, this is a huge issue about how these drug tests are unreliable and how bail reform and jail reform play into how somebody can end up with a criminal record when they are completely innocent. They have people making $8 an hour fighting against people making $16 an hour. Right. I I have a question about this. How do these tests get... I mean, don't you need... This is like totally my ignorance to how the justice system works. But how are these tests administered in the first place? An officer can just that's that's okay, a, so, a reasonable. All right. So the way a field test works is here. I'm showing you a picture. I know you can see it, Jackie, but yeah. they can't see it on the screen. Um, I don't know if we can get it on camera, but if no, we can, but we describe try. It. So basically, it's like a reagent test. Um, it comes with a, a thing, and the officer opens up the pouch. They put whatever they think is the drugs in it. Um, they then shake up the uh, pouch, and if it turns a certain color, that indicates the presence of drugs. But what warrants, literally, what warrants the officer to conduct the test in the first oh, place? Oh, whatever the officer wants. They can say, oh, look, look at that white crumb on the floor of your car. That looks like a rock of crack. Let's pick it up. I have reasonable suspicion to believe you have crack. Or they can say... Smells like weed in this car. We're going to search this whole car. And then they find a little tiny uh, piece of crumb of a hamburger bun. And they say, oh, that looks like a crack rock. Right. Um, and then they put it in the reagent test. And the reagent test falsely turns blue. And then when you get your public defender the next day, they're like, look, the field test turned blue. Like, you had the drugs. And you could be like, well, I didn't have the drugs. And they're like, okay, well, if you want to fight it and wait for a regular lab test to come back, then you're, you know, they're going to set $1,500 bail on you that your family can't make you can end up sitting in jail for the next three months waiting for that lab test to come back and the majority of people say you know what I'll plead guilty to the misdemeanor instead because that means I can walk out of jail today so this is a huge problem um, and and it really largely goes into the conversation we were having during the first part of this this show Um, so you know for those of you who have not seen or read this article I highly recommend it Um, you know and it also just goes back to that idea of like you know I'm so sick of hearing if you're not doing anything wrong then you're not going to go to jail like everybody who's involved in the criminal justice system knows that's a load of ish right no I I mean and I think that it's policies and, and laws and, and things of this nature that builds up that us versus them type of mentality that we're currently experiencing in, you know, across America. When you have systems, it just feels like, especially if you're black or brown, the system was built against you, right? It's there to imprison you, to make money off of you and to exploit you. And I mean, something as ridiculous as this is going on. I mean, how many little white crumbs do you think you might have floating around in your car mat? You I know, probably oh have. Oh my God. Yeah. I don't Are you kidding me? me? Like, but if I were a person of color, that might be an issue then, which is ridiculous. Like, to, it's a crime of having, 
you know, a messy eating habit. Than, yeah, no, and then be thrown you know, into some jail. officer who needs to make his quota, as uh, you know, Officer Raymond told us last week. And this is more of a problem in the South than it is here in New York, because I believe here, from what I understand, we use better field tests. Um, but you know, it's a huge problem. We really need to be paying attention to it, and and you know, not thinking of it as an ancillary problem. It it goes right into that uh, theme of our broken criminal justice system. Stanley? Speaking of things that are broken, Donald Trump endorsed them. I mean, pardon, endorsed, selected Mike Pence to be his vice presidential candidate. TV? And then they picked the worst Yes, the, logo the T having sex with the P. Now they had to get rid of that logo. That's right. And so Hold the, on, what was the logo? It was the a T in Trump. inserted into the, the like round Pence. part of the P. Wow. It's not Very... safe for work logo. <laughs> And wow. you could, there's a gift that shows you exactly how that TP works. Oh, but goodness. Anyway, not, I'll show it to you later, Selena. Please but, don't. Um, I promise to show it to you. But my favorite thing about all of this is Mike Pence. Let me tell you a little bit about this guy. He once wrote an op-ed in the New York Times that said that smoking cigarettes was not harmful to your health. Yep. He. <laughs> sorry. This guy is a grade A idiot. Right. He has he passed. Um, he signed a bill in Indiana that would make a woman who had an abortion responsible for paying for the funeral expenses of the of the whatever's left. And the religious freedom bill. Yes. Don't forget about that. Yeah. Oh, my God. Oh no my cake for you. That's Goodness. right. Yes. That let people refuse service to people based because of their religion. Yes. That's that. Well, no, refu- talking about. Yeah, um, based religion. on their religion, if they are gay. Yeah. Thank you. Sorry. Just like the, the water fountains back in the 60s. Like the right. I'll, I'll say this. I mean. Mike Pence's uh, reputation is absolutely horrible, Mm -hmm. but I will say when Donald Trump first came out with his whole talking point about banning Muslims from our country, you know, killing Muslim families Mm -hmm. if they happen to be connected to a terrorist, um, Mike Pence actually pushed back on that. He said that I do not believe that is, you know, a step that we should take in America that's unconstitutional. unconstitutional. That doesn't mean he doesn't necessarily agree with it, right? Well, he kind of pushed, like, I feel like his tone was, I don't agree with that. Yeah, no, he agrees with it now. Also, (laughs) Donald Donald Trump, after selecting him, had second thoughts and tried to find a way to take it back. Yeah, I heard about that too. But of course, the what? loser in all this is Chris Christie. Yep. Yes. Poor Chris. Did you hear Chris? Chris is so refusing. He wanted it so bad. Chris, he really did. Christie's refusing to pick up Donald Trump's dry cleaning now because he's so mad at him. Oh I mean, God, Chris cold. Christie has been losing the vice presidential pick since 2012. Like, I think he should get used to losing. And he's and he's no longer going to be governor soon. No, so yeah. what is Chris Christie going to do now? Go to the shore. <laughs> Go to the shore. Sure. That's not a place that I would want to see Chris Christie for. Oh, yeah. keep, keep, keep that t shirt on. Chris Christie, keep that t shirt on. Yes, guys. So we do have to wrap up the news roundup, but when we come back for the show, what we will be talking about. <laughs> Alyssa, what's wrong? Oh, I wanted to tell people about how Hillary was using Pokemon Go to register. Oh, okay, yeah, really quick. Yeah, so on the other side of that, Pokemon Go, Hillary is, like, using it really, really smartly. Um, I don't think it's pandering. I actually think it's genius clever. Smart, yeah. But so a lot of Hillary people, they're, what they're doing is they're spending money to set up lures um, at certain places so that people will come there because the lures where you go to collect a lot of Pokemon. And when you get there, there's, like, a register to vote table. That's awesome. And I think I that's it. so that's genius. Brilliant. And, like, on the other hand, right now, Hillary has 700 field workers, and Trump has 70 people working for him, and they all work in the national office. He has zero people out wow. on the ground. So yes. he is way, and way, way polls. ahead of Guys, Hillary. Guys, I saw someone fall into a subway track playing Pokemon Go, okay. trying to that, Pokemon. So say, you say, saw it? I saw this happen in Astoria, Queens. 
stay safe. This is a ridiculous game. Oh, it's so much fun. I, my Go train was delayed for 45 minutes because someone jumped into the tracks chasing a ride. You are lying, Stanley. <laughs> are you kidding? They jumped into the tracks? Yes. Wow. On I mean, Monday, I, I, like, you know what? I really feel like technology is dumbing us down a bit. No, I just think <laughs> stupid people are being like, Stupid being people. Amplified. Someone fell off a cliff trying to chase a Pokemon. Well, you know, one of the most dangerous things right now isn't the Pokemon. It's taking selfies. People are trying to take dangerous selfies <laughs> and dying doing that, Is that too. an epidemic? Yeah, yeah people are like, let me take this Stupidity selfie of me epidemic. falling off the Grand Canyon. Yeah, so many people fall... Literally fall out the Grand Canyon trying to take a selfie. Are you serious that's right now? That's, that's like a that's whole That's a new thing. story for another And you guys <laughs> aren't being hyperbolic. That's Not true. That, that, no. that really happened. I'll definitely have to look into that. Well, on that it's note, mostly white people. Yeah, it's, really it's, it's like all white people. <laughs> I, wow. Well, still mind-blowing. Black people getting arrested for taking selfies on the Grand Canyon. Right. We get arrested <laughs> for taking selfies. On that note, we do have to take a quick break, but don't go anywhere. When we come back, we're going to delve right into a conversation about the Bisto uh, Day Attack. Bastille. 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 Thank you. Bastille Day Attack. I'm going to also talk about the Turkey military coup right here on Let Your Voice Be Heard. Oh, yeah. Alexander Hamilton. Jackie will lose automatically. Yep. They'll be like, come on, Jackie. Can you really rap? Jackie will be like, tic-tac-toe. I saw a fly. Bonnie got shot by an FBI. They'll be like, she's in. Pick her. Pick her. She's in. So, guys, we are back. And this is Let Your Voice Be Heard on 90.3 FM. WHCR, the voice of Harlem. If you are just tuning in, we finished an amazing conversation during our news roundup where we talked about random news stories. And one of the biggest news stories of the week, the breaking news story, the story that made us all scream and shock was Hillary Clinton using Pokemon to register voters. (laughs) That's what it was. Nothing else. Just that. And that's the only thing that happened all week. That's the exact only thing that happened all week. The only thing that I'm going to acknowledge this week. Um, Monty, are you chasing Pokemon? Just not if you are. Monty says he is chasing Pokemon. That's why he was late today. He jumped onto the tracks and had to run the rest of the way to Harlem. Am I the only one here who's actually playing this game? Yes, you are. I'm scared. My friend said to me. I'm a master. I've been playing this game forever. I asked my friend, why don't I play Pokemon? He says, because you have a girlfriend. And he, mm. and he also bragged about losing 10 pounds since he started chasing but you Pokemon. Can play really? Pokemon with In a your week? Girlfriend. Yes. This game is like a week old. It's too I gotta so try jacky. It. Well, men lose weight faster than women generally. Oh, that's so. true. Uh, listen, I've been it's playing patriarchy. Pokemon since I was in seventh grade. Like, I was born for this. Yo, I had the higher, the, um, the right, the right shoe with the, um, the, the popping background back in the days, but then I got jumped for it. So I, I don't like have it Digimon. Anymore. So, no, I'm so I knew you were a loser. <laughs> no, loser. So, guys, we are not here to talk about Pokemon or the Pokemon masters in the room, which is only me because I'm the ultimate Pokemon master because I had the Tarabander and the Charizard evolved version because I'm a boss. We are actually here to talk about more ways the world is making us sad and want to cry and curl up in the ball in our air-conditioned rooms and just watch happy TV because we can't take it anymore. If you're wondering what I'm talking about, I'm talking about after we went through a week where we had four innocent people of color shot and killed by the police and then we had five police officers killed in cold blood by someone who clearly had some issues and that person was blown up by a robot drone that the police had because police have robot drones we tried to move past into a new we can be happy and then in paris a terrorist attack not took paris place. i'm gonna get that don't worry oh, nice and by nice. paris i mean nice no not <laughs> nice. i'm nice but actually <laughs> nice. nice oh my god nice not nice so you're not nice jackie you're not nice. anyways the place is actually called. <laughs> thank god jackie's here please yes, continue yes. to correct us so it's basically the place is called Nice, and it's actually not a laughing matter. We're laughing because Jackie's a loser, and Selena's weird. Right. But we're not laughing about the terrorist attack that actually took place in Nice. While they were celebrating their version of the 4th of July, I guess you would call it, because that's the best way that I can describe it, a huge truck burst onto traffic, and start, not traffic, but... 
the, the people that are celebrating a Calaria and started plowing through the crowd, killing in total 84 people, including 10 children and teenagers. And because I've done some research, because I want you guys to think that I'm smart, I have some information about what happened. Here is what I know at the moment. The truck was a 19-ton refrigeration vehicle rented by the assailant on Monday, and he sped down a crowded seaside promenade in Nice around 1045, going about 1.1 miles eastward. That is not a little bit of um, distance. 1.1 miles is between 10 to 20 blocks, depending on what part of New York you are in. If you're in Harlem, it's probably five blocks because the blocks are so long. I'm just kidding about that last part. At least 84 people were killed, including 10 children and teenagers. 303 were wounded. Of those wounded, 121 remain in the hospital, and 26 of them are in intensive care. I should tell you that someone did try to stop him before the cops got to him. The person tried to stop him with a knife, and he hung in the back of the truck but eventually fell off. He was not able to do that. Government officials identified the assault as Muhammad, I'm going to butcher his last name, forgive me, Muhammad Lahawaii. No. Oh, I'm sorry, continue. Do you want to correct me? Not yet. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'll, let you, I'll let you ruin the name. A 31-year-old delivery truck driver who was raised in northeastern Tunisia. Tunisia, and who moved to France around 2005. He had a minor criminal record, but he was not in the government database of radicalized militants. Depending on what news agency you're looking at, they'll say he had a hefty criminal record and that he was very violent. But, but he didn't. <laughs> the only thing on his record was that he had um, some sort of like misdemeanor offense. I think he had gotten into a fight with someone during like a traffic stop or something like that, but nothing that warranted like some right. like major... Um, regional or national intelligence to look into his activities. I want to just put it into um, perspective, and Stanley sort of mentioned this briefly, like what this would look like for those listening in the United States um, who maybe aren't familiar with France or Bastille Day. That would be like if somebody on the 4th of July went and drove a truck into onto the boardwalk on Coney Island and plowed through the masses of people out on the boardwalk celebrating the 4th of July during the fireworks, which is what ha- was happening. So during the loud explosive fireworks going off on this promenade, the I think promenade to Dunglace, I think is the yeah, proper yeah. name. Um, that would be like if on the 4th of July, during the 4th of July fireworks, somebody plowed through the boardwalk on Coney Island and killed a tremendous amount of people. I mean, this is unbelievably tragic. Um, and, you know, my heart goes out to those affected. And one of the sad things about this was what pretty, what the prime minister of um, France said. President. President, thank you. Of, well, I'm really butchering this. Oh my <laughs> Sorry, you're yeah. What the president of, of France said was more or less, France just needs to get used to terrorism being a part of their daily lives now. Whoa, I mean, so that's the new normalcy? It's that's crazy. That's the new normal, according to the president, I apparently. mean, they are not over what the... I mean, tragic attacks in, in Paris. And now, you know, you have this happening in Nice. And I mean, this is really France is feeling in a state of turmoil. I mean, think about if after September 11th, we had another another major terrorist attack, you know, a year later, yeah. we would be in shock. I mean, they haven't had time to deal with the first attack. And now now this. I mean, yeah. they were literally in the process of lifting their emergency, their three month emergency um, state, of emergency? state of emergency that they had, which obviously he had just announced it was going to be lifted. And now they've it's gone back. Um, but you know, now. another few things that I want to note. Um, one, you know, the guy so far, it seems this this person is a lone actor. He had no ties uh, to ISIS whatsoever. However, 
whatever, you know, um, and even ISIS has come out and said, you know, he didn't really have any ties to us, but he was still uh, a quote unquote brother in the movement, which just goes back to this idea that, you know, people don't have to be members of ISIS. Like the propaganda that they're putting out is enough to convince people who have no relationship to the Islamic State uh, specifically and have never traveled to Syria or to Iraq um, to actually fight, uh, you know, in with with ISIS to carry out these lone wolf attacks. But, you know, another thing to be said, and, and I want to do this in the most I'm trying to think like the, the best way possible um, to not, you know, place blame on France like a victim and to not engage in victim blaming, whether it's a person or whether it's a country. Um, but if you look at like a, a country like France, um, you find that in some cases they make it a lot more difficult for people to assimilate um, into mm, French culture yep. than we do here in the United States for yeah. Example, we have freedom of religion here in the United States, which means you can wear a hijab, right? If you're mm-hmm. Muslim, you know, you, or if you're um, a very religious Christian, you can wear a Christian uh, regalia. Or if you're a very religious Jew, you can wear um, your hat and you can have or whatever, yarmulke. or your yarmulke. Um, you know, France had passed a law a few years back that basically said that in all secular activities, I think it was about schools, that you were not allowed to wear any religious headgear, whether you were Muslim, whether you were Jewish, you know, like. Uh, and I don't know if that was specifically aimed at, at Muslims. I think it was because I don't think it said you can't wear a yarmulke to school. I think it was specific it to did. it did. OK, so I could be. But I mean, either way. So they you know, like that has created a situation where a lot of people feel that secular um, French law is at odds with their own religious beliefs. And that has created tension between religious communities and secular communities in France that we don't see as much of here in the United States because of the First Amendment's provision about religious freedom. Well, to jump off of that, I mean, even if this law did ban yarmulkes and, you know, other religious garb, I think that ultimately in France, what you see is a lot of tension between Muslims and, you know, not more secular. Um, I mean, you have a large population of immigrants moving into France um, from northern Africa, from the Middle East, and especially now um, post-Syrian refugee, you know, sort of, I mean, more in Turkey. But you have a lot of immigrants coming into France, and that's been the case for a while. So it's more geared, laws like that are more geared towards immigrants than they are towards just religious those who are religiously affiliated. Um, so I think that they disproportionately affect Muslims, many of whom um, you know, are at the lower end of the socioeconomic status in in France. Um, Yeah, so I wanted to add on to what Alyssa was talking about because the hijab or the headscarf was banned in 2004, as she was saying. On top of that, um, I actually have 2004, but if it's 2014, and you want to just double-check that for me. I thought it was Um, recent, but but I could be wrong. There was a recent one, Uh, uh, the face covering. We know that a lot of women wear, like, the burqas. That was banned in 2010. And now, also, I wanted to mention that uh, Muslims comprise 60 to 70% of France's prison population. Mm -hmm. So if we look at it from that perspective, Muslims are an extremely oppressed and marginalized community and group of people in France. And it was only a matter of time before the pot would boil over and people would start to retaliate. And by retaliate, I mean they make it so easy for ISIS to recruit people. One of their one of ISIS's biggest strategies is they give these oppressed people hope and they say, you know what, you need to fight the system. We need to overthrow the system and we need a revolution because the system is oppressing us. That's all it takes. And that's why you see so many people radicalizing in France, even here in America. And I want to mention that Mohamed Burel was radicalized within the last week. There are reports saying that he quickly radicalized 
within one week. But less so. You see it less so in America. That you uh, Just to point yeah. that out. And part of the reason is that we let people practice religion freely. For the most part. I mean, not if yeah. Donald Trump becomes president, we yeah, won't. Yeah, I know. But at least right now, uh, you know, <laughs> at least right now, we still, <laughs> now. Have, we still have a constitution. And when you make people, like if you, I'll give you an example. Like the guy who runs the my deli, right, he, the, who, who works um, the night shift. He, he's a Muslim guy. His name is Shafiq. Him and I go in there. We have conversations all the time. We talk about the similarities and the differences between Islam and between uh, Judaism. And, you know, and like we have really interesting conversations. And like he's free to practice his religion. And he feels like a New Yorker first, right? Mm-hmm. He feels like an American first since coming here. You know, he's not an American citizen yet. He ha- he's a lawful permanent resident. He's working towards becoming a citizen, but he feels accepted by America, even despite the anti-Muslim sentiment that we have here in America, whereas people in a lot of these other places don't feel accepted as French or don't feel accepted as British. They don't feel that acceptance that that he feels as an American. Yeah, but also I I wonder, I have to wonder if that's a unique um, to his own experience, like right. if that's unique to him or if that's how a lot of people feel. Because I, watching the news and seeing the world that we're living in today, I can't imagine being a Muslim American and feeling accepted, especially outside of New York or outside major, like larger communities where there were fellow Muslims, right? I would feel very isolated, um, especially listening to the rhetoric coming from the GOP. And I can't imagine that that is true. And I, I wonder if we're shifting farther and farther away from that because what we're seeing is, you know, I think it was like Newt Gingrich this week was on the news saying, you know, we should be interviewing all Muslims and finding out if they believe in Sharia law and those that do, which and not really understanding what Sharia law means, and those that do should be deported. Like, that's the kind of rhetoric we're hearing in this country. So I cannot imagine being someone, you know, if, if someone was speaking about Jews in this way and saying, you know, if you believe in the Talmud, you should be deported because that's not in line with our Western ideologies, then I would feel like I had no place in this country whatsoever and might be looking, you know, to look for somewhere where I would be more accepted, um, which I think a lot of people across the globe are doing in France, especially and in other countries in Europe, who are then leaving and go and tra- going to train in Syria, not really knowing what they're getting involved in. But feel- leaving, I mean, the catalyst for their joining this movement is often okay, we are not accepted or wanted by our home. We need to go somewhere where we can change that. And obviously, this is what it results in, which is terrifying. If you are just tuning in, this is Let Your Voice Be Heard on 90.3 FM, WHCR, the voice of Harlem. We are talking about the terrorist attack in Nice, and we are talking about the ways in which the French government, not blaming them, obviously, for these attacks, but has made it very uncomfortable to be a Muslim person in that country. We're also talking about comparing those relations between U.S. relations. What I find funny, and I know Selena has something to say, but what I find funny is how simple it is for us to kind of very quickly point out how France's aggression towards Muslim communities might be the reason that they're seeing such a response and so many people radicalizing, but America can't seem to figure out what's going on with black America. Well, I mean, great point, Stanley, and I want to say that France's right-wing party has actually been blaming France for having an open-border system, Mm -hmm. and they're saying if we never let immigrants pour into our country, we wouldn't have this problem, and I mean, that could be the—that's the furthest from the truth. The reason people even come is because they're fleeing war, they're fleeing poverty, you know, they're looking for refuge or asylum, and then when they get here, they're ostracized, and I think that— this country and especially white people across the world have not realized that. And I don't know. It seems like they're threatened 
and they don't want to really assimilate or, or, or be accepting or tolerant to other people, especially if they're black or brown and especially if they're Muslim on top of that. So and, and I also wanted to, to mention that um, ISIS now, we all know that ISIS is a branch of Al-Qaeda, right? My initial reaction to this no, no, is... No, 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 they're not a branch of Al-Qaeda. They're totally separate. Not, no, not a branch, but they branched off from Al-Qaeda. A lot of the people who were in Al-Qaeda branched off to form ISIS. That's and th- Yes. That's and, correct. Right, yeah. And so basically, w- ISIS is not playing fair. It's playing extremely dirty. Al-Qaeda, as a group, did not always encourage the loss and killings of innocent lives, and especially not Muslims. Like, they had some level of morality when they were attacking back. ISIS is just like, kill as many people as possible just take them out just right. take them out you know and and, and we're going to get into talking about this more during the second part of this which is another big problem is there's a really porous border between Syria and Turkey and obviously Turkey's having its own problems which is part of the second half of this conversation yeah. but this porous border between Syria and Turkey is letting people from that region and especially um, militarized ISIS fighters that have been radicalized come up into uh, Europe and into France so we can also talk about how the destabilization in Turkey um, has also led to the influx in farm fighters in France. So with that guys we're going to go on a quick break when we come back we'll be having a conversation about Turkey Sting on Jay-Z, Jay-Z, and Jay-Z Check. News. <laughs> Understand what y'all trying to do. I bought the flutes this time, though. That was a cover of Rihanna's song, Ooh, Ooh, Ooh. That- <laughs> That song actually, she speaks words on that. Does song. she? Rihanna speaks words. Rihanna doesn't. All right, if you guys think she can speak, I told I'll you leave it at that. Every Rihanna song is work, 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 and then you go, uh, na, 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 and then you I got feel like words. while she was coming up with the song, she was like, I don't feel like it. <laughs> like, or she was like really yeah. high and was like, this is so good. Yeah. And when, by the time she got to the studio, she was high again, so she just kept singing it. <laughs> so, guys, we are back on Let Your Voice Be Heard on ninety point three FM WHCR, the Voice of Harlem. If you were just tuning in. We are talking about what well, we were talking about, the terrorist attack, the terrorist attack in Nice that happened this past week. That sort of rhymes. And we closed out that portion of the conversation about two seconds ago, talking about how some of the reasons that we are seeing an uptick of terrorist attacks in Europe are because of the weak borders, particularly the weak border between Turkey and Syria. If you want to call in, the number is 212-650-6903. Speaking of weak borders and speaking of Turkey, no, not Turkey bacon, not Turkey not Turkey egg and cheese because that's disgusting, and not mm, Turkey cheese, lettuce, like, and tomatoes. Oh, wait, you know what, Selena? You've lost your black heart for seven minutes. Because I can't, I can't eat turkey egg and cheese? No, you can't. It's good for your heart. I don't eat you know, mine. You know what else bacon. is good for your heart? Hennessy. <laughs> All right. I have okay. made that plug in a bit. Okay. So anyways, guys, going back to Turkey, in case you guys did not notice, on Twitter on Friday, things went. Yes. God bless you, Alyssa. Things went from just regular, regular, regular schmegler to, to all of a sudden <laughs> Turkey was having a coup. And I'm not kidding. There was an uprising in Turkey where they tried to overthrow the the current governing structure. And apparently this was something that no one expected. And it happened out of nowhere. Here is the information that we have for this coup around 3.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So around the time that Stanley is getting his second cup of coffee for the day so that he can power through on Friday. <laughs> Reports began streaming in on social media of major military operations in Ankara and Istanbul. And the fun fact about this, the first thing I saw about this happening was that like Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube in Turkey got shut off. Internet's Com- down in Turkey. In, yep. 
Well, that's, that's what a, happens when you have authoritarians in that's, charge. That's right. And in Ankara, tanks rolled through the city streets, planes flew overhead, and military vehicles surrounded army headquarters. Istanbul's two main bridges, the Bosporus and the Fatu Sultan, I'm butchering these names, forgive me, were blocked off by soldiers. What was happening pretty much was a segment of the Turkish army, if I'm even getting the name correct, of the Turkey army had tried to revolt and overthrow the current governing structure. So we know that since the 1960s, Turkey has had a, a, at least three at least three coups against their governing structure. And what these coups have usually happened because they feel like they have to overthrow the government because they're taking away from the democratic process. And it's always in the name of democracy. That's what the argument always is. We know that there's been trouble in Turkey for quite some time and has been trouble brewing for at least a couple of months because we had a segment about this not too long ago. We know that America, even though we're not the best of friends of Turkey, we do have a relationship with them and we bomb them sometimes to kill terrorists and maybe some villages of innocent people. But who's counting innocent people, right, America? And we also know that Turkey is one of those quote-unquote stable countries that helps to fend off terrorists so that if Turkey for some reason had a coup and things were overthrown we might be in some serious poo-poo since we can't say the other word because the FCC is always listening <laughs> and with that we start this conversation with Turkey and the, tumult- the tumultuous in Turkey and by the way the coup failed yeah right. the, the the attempted leader, coup. The attempted coup failed. The leader who wasn't who was not even in Turkey had to Skype on his phone and he only had two bars because the Skype was, was grainy and he told people to take to the streets and stand up. And even though he's an authoritarian and he's very problematic, the people actually did that. Right. Well, right. you know, it's it's an interesting thing because it plays into some of the similar things we were talking about during the first part of this segment, which is this intersection between secularism and religion. And that's a, a big thing in Turkey. I mean, and, and even more so in Turkey, because you have it's Turkey's a big country and there's like an Islamic part of Turkey. And then there's the more European part of Turkey, uh, which is obviously the Western part of Turkey is more Europeanized, whereas the Eastern and, and, so- and, and, and more secular, whereas the Eastern and Southern parts of Turkey are closer to Syria and that's where the border is with Syria mm-hmm. are are less secular um, they're more religious and uh, they're more Islamic so you have like a clash of worlds going on in Turkey and as you point out this is so important to the US um, you know because we consider Turkey at least to be a partial ally Mm -hmm. in the fight against ISIS. So in a situation where the uh, military comes in and overthrows the democratically elected leader and then the U.S. has to make decisions about whether or not who we're going to be working with and whether we're going to work with the country of Turkey um, when we don't know who's actually going to be in charge there. Um, But going back to what you said about military coups, they are not, you know, out of the ordinary in no, Turkey, not at all. Um, you know, there, like you said, there has been three. This is now the fourth. Uh, the fourth. There's been three previous coups. This is the. Uh, this one failed. It was an attempted coup. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the fourth one. Every time the military thinks that the situation's getting out of hand, and what usually happens is the military claims to represent the secular portion of the country, and if they feel that the leader is getting too authoritarian and too religious, mm-hmm. then they say, well, we need to fight back to, to, to maintain secularism, which is really interesting because a lot of times what you see is the opposite, yeah. is that right. the leader is getting Egypt. too secular, and the military is a lot more extremist on the religious front, and they say, we need to take back this country and make it more religious. So it's like a flip-flopping of how things normally go down. It's very interesting and different situation. Yeah, so um, the reason this coup was not successful because they couldn't get enough of the army to back it because a lot of times when you're having these coups and it's done by the army, if you have a critical mass, we'll we'll say that, it gives a perception that you've got it and it's all packed in. A lot of the people in the army had not sided with the secular group. So what happened was the coup failed. Selena, 
Um, no, I mean, the, the only thing that I wanted to mention is, I mean, we were talking about the fight that the president was having with Fatal Gluten. Mm -hmm. um, he's actually, he actually put himself in exile here in Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. I know that you mentioned that he was here in the United States. And basically, um, what the president accuses this Muslim clerk of doing is um, attempting to overthrow the, the government based on his philosophy, which blends um, democracy, education, science, and like interfaith dialogue. That sounds like um, a good thing. Sound, yeah, exactly. But it's how it got implemented is uh. the problem. You know, he, if this guy was really preaching this to certain people in the military, then, you know, it needed to be more clear and more widespread. What it ended up looking like was just a small faction of the military yeah, deciding to break off on their own and do this. Another big reason why this failed is, so, I mean, there's, there's two major rules for a coup, right? If you want to have a coup, the first is capture an elected leader. Yeah. It doesn't have to be the president, but capture somebody who's in charge and hold them as ransom. Two, you better take over a government building. Yep. Holding two bridges, it's a good start, but it's not good enough. So, right. you know, and I'm not, and a coup isn't always a bad thing. Yeah. You um, have it all mapped out. You know, you know like, exactly. I, I right. say, like, a coup is how white people are, like, raising her if arms. If this was, like, you know, Tell if, me, girl. If, the, if, the, if the president of Turkey really was, and I'm not saying he was, but if there was really a situation where he was so authoritarian, where he was starting to act like Bashir al-Assad in Syria, for example, right. And he basically said, we're going to have a crackdown on all secularism and we're going to institute Islamic law all throughout the country and we're going to make Turkey into a religious country. And the, the, the military really said, you know, this is a big problem. We want to have a secular government. Let's get together a real coup and oust this guy. That may actually be a good thing for the Turkish people. But they needed to do it if that was the case. One, they needed the right circumstances. Yeah. And two, they needed to do it the right way. They couldn't just have a small faction. They needed to get more people in the military involved. Right. They needed to not just take two bridges, they would have needed to capture government officials, capture government buildings, and, and have a real coup. And, you know, sometimes you need to have a coup, but, you know, you got to do it the right way, there and was, you have to have the right circumstances There was for a coup it. here at City College that also failed for student government. Jackie? Um, and I think what's most interesting to me about, about this coup is that now that it has failed, what... It, Ultimately, what it seems to me is that President Erdogan will have even more favorability amongst the public. Um, so it's absolutely the you know unintended consequence of this is that he will be even more favorable amongst his constituency. And he's democratically elected leader. Um, so this might be a great thing for his... It's, his next campaign. This is a wonderful thing for him, Jackie, by the way. And also because he wants the state to become more authoritative. And he wants more power. And now right. that his approval ratings are going to be super high because he defeated a coup, he might be able to get some of those things that the people who cooed were trying to stop him from getting. So it seems like not only did they lose the coup, they lost the war of the coup, too. Yeah, I think that there's going to be another one if that's the case. If your theory is right and he yeah. ends up gaining a lot and holding a lot more power, mm -hmm. I think eventually what's down the line is cause there's going to be a much more organized coup. A bigger coup for you. Uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, that will try to reinstitute secular... I mean, listen, right. I'm going to stand on the side of secularism mm -hmm. when it comes down to it, yeah. personally speaking, but I think if that's the case, um, you know, eventually you're going to have people that are secular turn around and, and, and you'll end up having maybe a, a bigger and more successful coup. We will see. But it doesn't. It also doesn't help the situation for the rest of Europe just to circle back around to France right. um, or, or Belgium, because as long as there's instability between the government and the the military and just in general in Turkey, then you have more likely to have a porous border and more likely to have fighters coming up uh, from Syria and people who are radical jihadists entering Europe through Turkey and committing terrorist attacks. Yeah, Selena. 
Well, I mean, I just wanted to mention that in the midst of it, over at least 194 people were killed, um, more than 1,500 arrested, and uh, uh, over 1,400 people were injured. So I just wanted to bring in the humane side of things. Yeah. Like, I understand, like, everybody is fighting, but this just leads to more bloodshed, more violence, and may, uh, more instability. I mean, oh, can you imagine you go to sleep one day and then the next day your your government and your networks and your media have been taken over? I mean, I can I cannot imagine that, and it just makes me more grateful to live in a place where where we live in America, where we have a democracy, where we can hear both sides, no matter how ludicrous or ridiculous it is, everyone has a voice. And uh, for the most part, everyone should be protected. I say should in quotes because we know what happens to black and brown people, but at least we don't have this problem to this magnitude. I think a good comparison is like, can you imagine President Obama getting on FaceTime with Anderson Cooper on TV and calling for the American public to take to the streets. Like, this is something that we have not experienced in recent history in this country. I don't think we've ever had a coup in the United States. We've had had a bunch of uprisings. We've never had a situation... We've had more revolutionary... But we've never had a situation where the U.S. military um, basically tried to overthrow a democratically elected president. That has never happened in the United States. Until Trump gets elected. And I will happily join that coup if Trump gets elected, guys. All right, yes, I I will enlist. That's a good transition into my quickie, but I know we're going to take a quick (laughs) break before we get there. And Stanley's going to tell us his, you know, a little bit of his closing thoughts. Well, yeah, I was. So uh, what I want to say about this coup is we were talking about this coup as a per experts guy. So just to be clear, we are not experts (laughs) on this at all. What we are doing is taking the information that we have available to us and sharing it with you. And then a bit bit of theorizing, armchair politicking about what we think is going to happen next of what we think works. I want to mention that this is something you should be paying attention to because just because it's happening in Turkey, which is thousands of miles away from you, doesn't mean it will not affect you or cannot affect you. It can affect you, and a lot of times the things you think won't affect you do. George H.W. Bush was out in Camp David for a 30-day vacation within the first five months of his his time as president, and they were sending him warnings about things that were happening in the Middle East with Al-Qaeda and ISIS. You know what he said? Who the F is Osama bin Laden? He can't do anything to us. A month later, two planes flew into the Twin Towers. And obviously that's not going to happen to you because you don't, you're not the president of the United States. But what it does say is that when you ignore things that are glaring problems or that could become glaring problems, you put yourself in a situation where you will be unable to react when the ish hits the fan. With that being said, stay educated, stay active, stay alert. We're going on a quick break. When we come back, it's the news roundup. No, quickie. Selena, damn Oh, I'm sorry. You said news roundup. Did I steal your thunder? Yes, you did. A little bit? Sorry about that. You can continue. Thanks. It's not the same anymore, guys. Now you know say, how it feels. You know what? I, so I take that apology new, back. It was now a, you know how it feels. Selena, we got to go. No, yeah, we do. It was a news roundup, but actually it's a quickie. I just want to see if you were paying attention. Darn it. <laughs> and we are back. So um, my name is Alyssa Fuchs. I'm your political and legal correspondent. I'm here to tell you about uh, the 12th Amendment, amendment a lot of people don't pay attention to, um, but really important amendment. But I'm also here to talk about Bernie and Hillary and Bernie's endorsement of Hillary and why uh, the left jumped off a cliff. I mean, the far left, and they uh, they joined Jill Stein, and um, you know I'm going to get into all of that. So that what what am, what am I talking about? Because I just sound like I was rambling and threw a few sentences together. So uh, last week, Bernie Sanders um, formally endorsed Hillary Clinton uh, for the Democratic uh, 
you know, nomination. Um, obviously, uh, he still hasn't actually ended his own candidacy. Um, he is going to speak at the Democratic National Convention, um, but he did come out and he did essentially concede to Hillary Clinton and endorse her for the job. Um, of course, a lot of people on the uh, far left um, who are Bernie or bust people um, were very upset. They said that Bernie sold out. Um, you know, they were very uh, also annoyed because Jill Stein, who is the candidate for the Green Party, uh, had told Bernie Sanders that she would step back into a VP role and she would let Bernie run as the Green Party candidate if he wanted to come join her on the ticket. Um, so a lot of people were really disappointed. They thought that Bernie Sanders should not have endorsed Hillary, that instead he should have run against Hillary in a three-way race, Trump, Hillary, and Bernie. Uh, he chose not to do that and instead endorsed her, as I already said. So why? I mean, obviously, I don't know exactly why. I can uh, speculate as to why. Um, you know, I, I have a feeling a lot of it is he was running as a Democrat. He, you know, he said he wanted to be part of the Democratic Party, that he wanted, you know, he didn't want to make it seem like he just joined the Democrats and then he was now going to leave and go off and do his own thing. Um, but I think a big reason of it, um, and even if he didn't necessarily take this into consideration, although I'm presuming he did, and I really don't think I'm wrong, is the 12th Amendment. And a lot of people are really unfamiliar with what the 12th Amendment is and how it operates and why this may be a reason why he decided not to join Jill Stein and run on her ticket. So the 12th Amendment is obviously an amendment to the Constitution. As with all amendments to the Constitution, it is a law. It lays out the foundation for the manner in which our presidential election is basically decided. I am not going to read the full 12th Amendment. It is pretty long. It lays out a variety of different things about the presidential selection process, but I am going to read you a little snippet um, of the 12th Amendment, which specifically speaks about the president. Uh, so it says the person having the greatest number of votes for president shall be the president. That's pretty straightforward. If you have the greatest number of votes for president, you shall be the president. However, if such number has to be a majority. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm going to read it first and then I'll paraphrase it. If such number be a majority of the whole numbers of electors appointed. So what that means is the majority of the greatest number of votes has to be a majority of the whole number of electors. And when we're talking about electors, we're talking about the electoral college votes. Now, there are 270. I'm sorry. There are double that. Um, so double 270. Uh, 440? Four, yeah. Little, no, 540. Sorry. Yeah, electoral college votes. And so... Um, Half of the more than half of those is 270. You basically 269, 269 is a split electoral college. Nobody has a majority. In order to have a majority, you have to have 270 or more. That would put you over half of the total number of electors. Pretty straightforward. It's not a plurality. It doesn't change depending on the number of people that are running for president. It is based on the number of electoral college voters. So as you point out, if there are 500 and whatever 40 40 electoral college voters. Half of that, two seventy, whatever the math is. I'm not getting into the math. I right just now. did it. I know. <laughs> Selena did the math. What? Sorry, never mind. <laughs> no, no, that's Congress. Don't confuse people. Okay, so here's the important point. If no such person has this majority, then from the persons having the highest numbers, not exceeding three on the list of those voted for as president, the House of Representatives shall choose immediately by about the president. So what the hell does that mean? Well, what that means is if you do not have a majority of the electoral college votes, meaning if you don't have the 270, then the House of Representatives pick the president from the top three candidates. So in a situation where Bernie Sanders decides to run on 
on the Green Party ticket, um, and it's Bernie and it's Hillary and it's Donald Trump. If Bernie wins a bunch of states, now remember, because when Ross Perot did this back in 1992, Ross Perot won a lot of votes, but he never won any states. And because he never won any states, he never won any electoral college votes. But if we got in a situation where, let's say, Bernie won Vermont and Bernie won New Hampshire and Bernie won Michigan and Bernie won Wisconsin, and then let's say, um, you know, Hillary won Ohio and Hillary won Pennsylvania and Hillary won Nevada and Colorado and California, and then let's say Trump won Missouri and, you know, this state and that state. And what ended up happening was nobody got to 270 because they all split the different electoral college votes. Then the electoral college vote would now get bumped back to the House of Representatives. And that would mean that essentially Paul Ryan, who's the Speaker of the House, would have to choose between these three candidates, the top three vote getters. And in this situation, if there's four people running, because Gary Johnson's running also. So let's presume for a second Hillary Trump and uh, Bernie Sanders get the top three, then what would happen is the House of Representatives would choose from those three people. So they would either choose Bernie, Hillary, or Trump. And since the House of Representatives is currently run by Republicans, who would they choose? Trump. Probably, exactly, because they'd have no other choice. Now, obviously, if... On the other hand, if let's just say, just play this out a little differently, if Bernie Sanders doesn't run on the Green Party ticket and now it's Trump, Johnson, Clinton and Stein, which is what it's going to be. And let's just say for a second, Johnson actually had the ability to win electoral college votes. That may play out a little differently because then the top three vote getters, if nobody got 270 votes, might be Johnson, Trump and Clinton. And in that situation... The House may actually choose Gary Johnson because establishment Republicans really, really, really don't like Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. So in that situation, you might end up with somebody who's conservative, but who is, you know, not Donald Trump. But in a situation where you have two liberals, you're almost guaranteed to get a Donald Trump presidency. So I think that's a big reason why Bernie did not decide to run on the Green Party ticket, because I think he thought, you know, maybe if I actually do win some states, which is totally possible because he really did win a lot of votes in certain states in the primaries, I think he thought maybe I'm going to split the vote and I'm going to lead it to into a situation where by default, the House is going to pick Donald Trump as the president. Now, obviously, um, you know, I've actually made the argument, taking this one step further, that this is actually a big reason why we have a two-party system and why we don't have a multi-party system. Because in a legitimate multi-party system, we would almost always get in a situation where if third and fourth party candidates were able to win states, then the House of Representatives would almost always get to choose who the candidacy was. Now, some people have made the argument, yeah, but if we had third or fourth parties that won House and Senate seats, then it wouldn't be so clear that Republicans would run the House or Democrats would run the House. And that's actually true. Yeah. But the only way to fix that situation is to fix gerrymandering. And we did a great show. I think it was about a year ago. We had somebody on from Fair Vote um, that talked about that. So, yes, there are many different variables that come into play. Um, but you know, what we really should remember in this is that the United States of America is not a direct democracy. We live in a republic. Um, we elect representatives to go to Congress to represent our, in theory, or in theory to represent the things that we want. Um, and right now, the House of Representatives is run by Republicans. So 
um, you know, I don't want to fear monger. I don't want to tell anybody that they have to go out and vote for whoever they want to vote. But, you know, I voted for Bernie. I don't live in a swing state. I could stay home. I could write Bernie in. I could vote for Jill Stein. But I'm still going to cast my ballot for Hillary Clinton. If you live in a swing state, this becomes even more crucial. And again, I don't want to fear you into voting for Hillary. And I don't want to tell you who to vote for. But I do want to make it very clear. The Supreme Court is at stake. There's a lot at stake in this election beyond the Supreme Court. And in a situation where you stay home because you're mad about Bernie not joining the Green Party, you're only going to lead us to a situation in which you're taking votes away from Donald from Hillary Clinton and handing them to Donald Trump. And that's a really scary prospect. And also, if you're mad at Bernie for not joining Jill, understand he had to be strategic. He did it for a reason. He didn't want the election being bumped back to the House of Representatives. And that's all I got for you guys today. So that's your little primer on the 12th Amendment. No, thank you so much for that, Alyssa. We appreciate that. And we also appreciate all of you for tuning in to let your voice be heard today. Thank you for tweeting us, calling in, and, you know, just listening and continuing to support us. Now, if you want to listen to this show again or share it with your friends, you should definitely check out our website at lyvbh.com where you can hear all of our podcasts. They are archived on our website. You can also subscribe via iTunes at LYVBH Radio. So, we are extremely accessible. Definitely check us out, continue to support, and we'll continue to distribute the knowledge that informs, educates, and empowers. See you next week, God willing. Hi, this is Sister Virginia Cotton, and I'll take you to that place every Tuesday morning from 6 to 10 in the 